Hey everybody, what's happening? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for April 23rd, 2018. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today, and I'm joined in studio by my fellow 538 sports writer, Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. Unfortunately, our other usual co-podcaster, Chris Herring, is unable to join us today because of a personal matter, but we will keep on continuing our playoff discussion. Today, we're going to talk about the trio of 2-2 two to two series in the Eastern Conference. And before we do that, though, let's do some quick takes, Kyle, on the series that we won't be discussing in depth today. I'm just going to jump right in on... On uh, a series that's over, it's the only sweep of round one. That would be the Pelicans beating the Trailblazers four to nothing. It was kind of a surprising sweep at first, but it just kept piling up. Uh, Kyle, what, where, where do the Blazers go from here? What do they do now? Um, well, I'm sure we'll cover this at length over the off season, but they they can't bring this back, right? Like this is what they were hoping for. They were hoping to get you know home court in the first round. They were hoping. Everything went right this season. Yeah, until the playoffs started. Until it didn't. Yeah. And so the obvious answer that, you know, everyone throws around is trade McCollum. Um, probably don't bring back Nurkic, um, at the, the cost that he's going to get, but they're like capped out anyway. So I'm not sure. Like yeah. they, they've been kind of backed into the corners since they, you know, spent in that first year that the cap spiked and they brought in Evan Turner and Alan Crabb at uh, yes. you know, enormous deals, uh, then and now. And like the the roster moves and the roster moves they couldn't do because they had those are what kind of backed them into the corner here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Let's move on to the Sixers and the Heat. Philly up three to one in that one. Uh, as it turns out, having Joel Embiid back was helpful for Philly after all. Uh, do the Heat have a chance? They they kind of let the game slip through their hands on Saturday in particular. They they had a shot at winning that one late uh, and and didn't come through. What what do they have to do to kind of get back into this one? One, they can't go through long stretches without being able to score, uh, which I'm not sure they're going to be able to do with this you know iteration of the lineup, especially with Hassan playing like. He is, but for long stretches of that game, especially down the stretch, the Sixers were the ones that looked like the the veteran team, like getting extra possessions, like getting offensive rebounds all over, getting turnovers, and just you know kind of finding the ball because they're bigger, they're longer at every position, they're more athletic at most positions, and yeah, they they just looked like they were getting all the extra possessions, and this was kind of the binary of this team where uh, I picked them to lose this game, this series, and I think seven, but. It was either they weren't ready or they were. And if they weren't ready and, like, you know, they were whatever, they will probably go out in the first round, but, you know, put in some good games. If they are, especially looking at how weak the rest of the, the conference looks like, which we'll get to, uh, like, I could see them going to the finals. Like, sure. <laughs> like... Yeah, um, but but yeah, they they look like they've already got it together. Yeah, for them, the experience was the question, not the talent, and now they seem to have answered some of the questions about how how their poise would hold up in the playoffs. Uh, okay, moving on to the Western Conference, we've got the Rockets up two to one over the T Wolves. Minnesota finally got one back on the Rockets. They won by sixteen at home on Saturday. Is that anything for the Rockets to be concerned about, or is that just something that happens in, in a playoff series, even if you are a big favorite? I mean, I think it's something that just happens in a playoff series, but we also haven't seen the Wolves play as though they're, you know, intend to win a playoff series. So I'd like to see what happens in game four where uh, Carl Anthony Towns actually takes a shot in the first quarter where he had like a better game in game three, but he's maybe five for 13. Yeah, I think. five for 13 uh, with, with and, 18 points, but but obviously most of those from the line. Right. So at least he got into double digits this time. Uh, but Jeff Teague's still good, and, you know, Butler, who is, you know, has, like, all kinds of injuries that, like, are unreported because he's tough and manly and lies on the injury report, which he's not supposed to do. 
um, like it was playing better too. Yeah, and and Derek Rose, uh, eight for sixteen off the bench with seventeen points, which I don't think you can count on. Those aren't seventeen points you want. <laughs> it's a, it's actually a bad thing to to be putting him in that position. Uh, okay, uh, let's talk about the Jazz and the Thunder. This the series that we've been kind of watching closest throughout the the entire playoffs. That seems like so far Utah's up two to one in that one, thanks to a Ricky Rubio triple double. Donovan Mitchell once again just took over the game by himself in the fourth quarter, outscored OKC's big three all by himself. Uh, Russell Westbrook vowed that the Rubio triple-double would never happen again, uh, and I think in general vowed that that uh, they, they wouldn't let uh, Utah hang some kind of game on them like they did. Is he right in that? Uh, what do you think about the Thunder uh, digging their way back? It's entirely up to them. So I'm mad at... Like, this, is, this is the dumbest series for, for a bunch of reasons, but... <laughs> Um, yes, like the Oklahoma City. In a good way. In a, no, uh, it's in a frustrating way. This, it's so, the Oklahoma City offense, you know, has all its problems. The Oklahoma City defense is missing Andre Robertson. Like, there, there are things that, you know, were always going to be an issue coming into this series, but can someone stand next to Joe Ingles? <laughs> so like, Mitchell had a great game, Rubio had a great game, but the thing that kept happening down that stretch where every time the Thunder looked like they were gonna, like, go back ahead or like make it a game, whatever, is Ingles would just leak out and Paul George or Russell Westbrook would be standing seven, eight, ten feet away from him, not seeing him. It's like, see the man, see your ball, see the ball is like the most basic thing that you learn. And they were just kept leaving alone the guy who was killing them over and over with three. Like, so yes, like the big games from other, from star players in the playoffs, like gonna happen. But can you stand next to the shooter? Like, let's start there. Yeah, right. That's that's the most basic thing. Although we should say Joe Ingles has been doing some version of that all season long. Uh, we talked about him as being one of the kind of unsung heroes of that team as they were making that run during the regular season. He just kind of kept doing it uh, against what's theoretically a, a good team. Oh, no, no. Not taking anything away from him. But, like, he can do that well contested. He can do that under more pressure. Just make him earn it. Yeah, like, yeah. can you stand next to him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so finally, we've got the Warriors and the Spurs. That one is Golden State 3, San Antonio 1. Uh, despite missing coach Greg Popovich again on Sunday, San Antonio inched closer. Uh, was this just a case of something that um, Tony and uh, and I were talking with our executive VP of content, Connor Shell, the other day? We He kind of joked that there's this thing called the gentleman sh- sweep in the NBA where it's like, you're up 3 nothing. you know, you let up a little bit, the other team gets to save face with a game and then you kind of close it out is that what this was uh just sort of a, a gentleman's five game sweep uh set being set up so i think less on the respect and more if you really want to go into the uh, like kind of conspiracy theory end of it is the steve kerr quote after which is that steph curry is not going to play or like going to play not anytime soon oh so they were dragging out uh the series against an opponent that they believe they could beat even without curry so that they could get curry back sooner in the next series right and their opponent has swept already and so i don't actually believe that either i think it's just like a thing that happens and you know they they let off the gas of the warriors and also they don't have curry it's hard but, to beat a team four straight times. But yeah, I think if you're going to go with one conspiracy theory, that's probably the one. Okay, let's move on to the series that have grabbed our attention the most. These are the tied series as the first round has moved forward. Uh, let's start with Toronto and Washington knotted up at two games apiece. Uh, you know, you got to feel for Toronto after they snapped their losing streak in game ones and then extended their lead to two nothing. It seemed like, yeah, they're going to kind of cruise in this one, but Washington did not go away. Uh, they came back home 
home for Game 3, crushed Toronto 122-103, to and then they gutted out a 106-98 to win on Sunday to even the series up. Kyle, for Washington, was this just as simple as getting John Wall and Bradley Beal playing in peak form? Wall had 27 points and 14 assists in Game 4, uh, and he made or assisted the Wizards' last seven baskets of the game. He also played good defense against DeMar DeRozan, and uh, Wall and Beal have combined for 57 combined points per game in those two victories. Was was it just that? So it wasn't just that. I mean, like, let's not take away from John Wall. John Wall had a very good game. Uh, Bradley Beal probably played better in this last game um, until he got fouled, fouled out with yeah, a ridiculous call. Ridiculous yeah. call. Um, but it was with, what, five minutes left, about, and they still pulled through. And that kind of paved the way for Wall to do his thing and take over, right? Mm-hmm. But let me let, let's play let's play a game here. I didn't tell Neil we were going to do this. <laughs> Can you guess Demar Derozan's usage percentage in the second half? I'm going to guess thirty uh, percent. That seems kind of a normal Demar Derozan outing. Demar Derozan's usage in the second half of this game was forty nine. Oh, 49 forty nine after the half. Wow. And his true shooting was forty eight. Uh, your true shooting should not be underneath your usage percentage. Typically. Yes, that's really bad. It's a little like shooting your age in golf. His net rating, we're not even going to do it. It's ridiculous. It's minus fifty seven. Minus fifty seven per one hundred yes. possessions. It was just all. It was just all ISO. It was all like he would take those uh, five dribbles after the handoff and just walk into coverage and take a shot. So like. Basically, what's been happening over the back end of this series is DeMar DeRozan will start the pick and roll at the top of the key. Uh, if his screener gets screened, if his defender gets screened off, he'll walk into like a fairly open shot. He'll make that a decent amount of the time. If it doesn't, he'll either, he will either take a very contested long range shot, often with his foot on the, or not often, occasionally with his foot on the line. So like the longest two you can take. It's been bad. It got really bad in the second half and, uh, like the Raptors kind of going away from their new identity, like when they were kind of getting beat up by the Wizards, is what we've been worried about all season. Yeah, and and it also bears mentioning that it seems like Toronto's bench, uh, which was so effective, and we talked about that during the regular season, uh, and we had our questions about whether that would hold over to the playoffs when the bench takes on less importance. It does seem like that bench mob is losing some effectiveness. The group with C.J. Miles, Jakob Pertl, Pascal Siakam, and DeLon Wright are minus 18.3 points per 100 possessions in this series so far. They were plus 9.7 during the regular season, which was one of their best lineups. We should also say Fred Van Vliet, uh, who's another key member of that lineup, has only played three minutes in the series due to injury. But it does seem like you know, all those concerns that we had about whether Toronto's uh, style and, and the way that they were constructed would carry over into the playoffs have kind of borne out in, in the past couple games. And yeah, they are a couple of road games, though. But I don't know. How worried are you about uh, Toronto for the rest of the series? You said going in that uh, Washington was really just kind of a speed bump for them to go over uh, as they were making their way deeper into the playoffs and maybe having Cleveland in mind down the line. Is Do you still think that or do you think that Washington has kind of shown enough to be a legitimate threat to the number one seed Raptors so I still think that this has very little or like not as much to do with the the Wizards as it does the Raptors and so when I picked the Raptors and I picked them to win fairly easily like yeah like the the Wizards like dysfunction and you know kind of wall coming back from injury very late in the season played into that a decent amount, but I also just believe the Raptors. I believe them when they were just telling us, oh yeah, this is how we play now. We're not going to, you know, shift into the old DeMar DeRozan ISO for, you know, quarters at a time offense. And they lied to us again. <laughs> like it's not our, like it's, it's our fault at this point. So 
Yeah, I think that this is a series that absolutely they can lose at this point. It's 2-2. They should still be able to beat this team uh, pretty easily. But uh, but no, if they played the way that they have in uh, the last two games, and especially this last game and especially the last half, then no, they're, <laughs> that's not a very good team. Uh, if you consult our Carmelo model for whatever that's worth, uh, the Raptors still have an 80% chance of winning the series. So maybe they are in the driver's seat, even though it's tied at two games apiece. Okay, let's move on to the Celtics and the Bucks, another 2-2 series. And uh, just like Toronto, Boston jumped out to a 2 nothing lead at home, only to drop each of the next two games on the road and find the series all tied up. Uh, what has caused the Bucks' turnaround in this one? Is it just a matter of hot shooting, kind of the make-or-miss league like we tend to talk about a lot on this show where some team starts making threes, it, it's kind of tough to beat them if they do that on a given night? So on one hand, yes. But on the other hand, how much did they win this game by? Uh, it was a two-point win for the Bucks in that one. Can you think of two points that they really shouldn't have had, the Bucks? Well, yes. Something <laughs> springs to mind in that. So Matthew Dellavedova won the game, basically, at the end of the first quarter. Like, if you want to go with uh, two points or, you know— They all or, count the same. They all count the same. And so, so he, they were, the Celtics were trying to walk the ball up the court, um, at the end of the game, at the end of the quarter. Uh, Delevadova dove in, threw it up, got it to two points, whatever. And yes, like that usually doesn't happen in a two point game. Uh, like those two points ended up mattering. But the Bucks did win by 24 points in game three also. So had a few things gone differently in this game, had, uh, Malcolm Brogdon not hit a, a big, big shot at the way he hit a big shot in game one, had Jabari Parker not had a nice game also, uh, this seems like it could have gone pretty easily to the Celtics. And we're looking at a 3-1 series in which, like, the, the losing team, like, you know, blew out the team in one game. But the leading team is probably going to walk. That, that's the way series often go. So, yes, like, it is a make-and-miss league. Uh, but it also, like, with Brogdon, with Parker, uh, that is just the depth of the Bucks that, because of injury, because of, you know, whatever else, the Celtics don't have. The Celtics don't have that second line of players because they're all injured. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a that's a big thing to point out. Uh, and we should also say that the guy who had been sort of the Celtics savior of sorts, or at least helped them overcome the injury to Kyrie Irving in the first couple games, Terry Rozier, who was great. He was so great, Eric Bledsoe forgot who he was uh, for a second. Well, he's gone from averaging 23 points per game on 47% shooting and no turnovers in the first two games to averaging only 9.5 points per game on 26% shooting with three turnovers per game over games three and four of the series that also seems like it's had a pretty big effect on Boston as a whole uh when when you you know you lose Kyrie Irving you think how are we going to deal with that well Terry Rozier is right there stepping it up and and kind of playing a similar role and they actually wasted some great performances by Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum uh in game four uh they combined for I want to say uh 50 something points in that one it was 34 for Brown 21 from Tatum yeah and like they've both been very impressive where to where early in the season uh we were talking about, oh, yeah, so they're going to need something out of Brown and maybe Tatum, but like Tatum's a rookie, so we're not expecting much uh, if they're going to get over the, the Gordon Hayward injury. And then through the season, like, yeah, they were playing very well. Like Tatum was, you know, scoring well on ISOs and, you know, Brown, you know, around the uh, the off-ball screens. They're both playing well on defense, but their numbers on ISOs and drives were just also, like, not great uh, when they, whenever they had to, you know, make it happen themselves. Which they didn't have to do often with Kyrie playing. Next. Not as much. And then Kyrie goes down, too. And then down the stretch, they have to, you know, make it happen on their own. A lot of the offenses gets falling to them, especially with Smart out of there. And especially in this series, but like late in the season two, they've done that too. These are things, these are jumps that usually happen from year to year and they're happening within the season. 
within the playoffs. Within even. the playoffs. Yeah. And that says, I think, a lot about like Brad Stevens and like the, the system as a whole, but like also they're just very good. That number that you referenced, uh, they combined for 55 points. Uh, I saw somewhere, and I'm, we don't have this checked or whatever, but like, I'm pretty sure that that was the most, uh, by teammates under 21 years old or around that age since Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, which is like the level of performance we're talking about here. Yeah. So, uh, the, the Celtics future seems really bright, even though they are kind of stuck in this two to two series. And we should also say that according to the 538 model, uh, Boston has a 66% chance of moving on and closing out the Bucks, even though they're all tied up. Probably a function of home court as much as anything and marcus smart may become marcus back smart possibly six. coming back yes uh okay uh, let's move on to the final tied up series that would be cleveland and indiana and this one has been really fun we've talked about this one a couple times now it's had some really good twists and turns first there was indiana coming back from down 17 points to beat the Cavs on friday night take a 2-1 series lead you got some good lance stevenson chatter after that one he said the the pacers were in control the Cavs would start panicking if they fell behind three to one uh but then LeBron put up 32 points, 13 rebounds, and 7 assists on the road to keep his team from facing elimination and tie the series up. Also some fun Lance Stevenson moments at the end of that game. Uh, but I think the bigger difference, and maybe you could um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was not in how LeBron took over, because we've seen him do that uh, you know, throughout this series, but more that his teammates actually finally produced. Got 18 points from Kyle Korver. He knocked down some pretty important shots in the fourth quarter. Jared Smith scored 12. Jordan Clarkson scored 12 coming off the bench. That's the formula that we're kind of used to seeing from the Cavs in the playoffs is LeBron plays great. He's always going to play great. But he's traditionally been surrounded by role players who also have the ability to make shots and step up. And we hadn't really seen that that much uh, in this series until game four. So I want to say yes, but also no. Yes, having Kyle Korver come in and like hit those shots that he hasn't been hitting, having J.R. Smith finally have a good game. Um, is great. Jordan Clarkson had some insane plays down the stretch. Yes. Where it was just like, oh, like the game is on the line. Jordan Clarkson ISO for seven, eight seconds of the shot clock, um, into like a drive. Like, sure. But like they went in like, okay, great, great Jordan Clarkson. Uh, but the other players that, you know, kind of we were expecting to shoulder some of the creation burden. So Rodney Hood had two field goal attempts. He went one for two for, for six points. That's not what we were expecting from him. We were expecting him to come in and kind of, be the high usage player that like maybe isn't as efficient, maybe isn't as dynamic as Kyrie Irving, but traditionally LeBron has also had a guy like Dwayne Wade, like Kyrie Irving, like um, you know Booby Gibson back in the day, <laughs> uh, where some he isn't the only one creating, and like on this team. Uh, like you came out, like they were just started with five shooters when like, Kevin Love fouled, uh, got a second foul in the first 90 seconds. And like they had to bring in Tristan Thompson. Tristan Thompson, uh, is also a guy who's like obviously not going to create, but he'll run some high pick and roll with you and do whatever. But like, but everything about the, the Cavs performance last night was about LeBron, even like if it wasn't all the scoring. Sure. Yeah. And uh, what was Ronnie Hood's usage rate in Utah? We, we talked about this at the trade. It was like north of like 31% or something I like that. I think it was, it was up at like 27, 28%. Oh, okay. Which is still yeah. very, it's close. Still very high. Yeah. That's like, really high. And, and it's been kind of amazing to see him kind of not adjust his game necessarily, uh, upon joining the Cavs because he has sort of maintained 
kind of a low level of efficiency. And usually you assume that there's this trade-off where, okay, you, you take on less usage, you're going to become a lot more efficient. And that's kind of the hallmark of guys that have shifted from big roles playing uh, before they went to play with LeBron to playing in that supporting role next to LeBron. Kevin Love uh, comes to mind. I mean, throughout LeBron's career, he's had these guys sort of take on uh, Chris Bosh might be the ultimate example of that, take on a lesser role uh, when they join him and become really efficient in that. Uh, and I think we're all expecting to see that from some of these other guys, not just Hood, but, you know, George Hill. Uh, and they have been mixed results at best, I think. Uh, and the adjustment hasn't necessarily been there to kind of slot in alongside LeBron and provide that efficiency that we are accustomed to seeing. Right. I mean, Hill was shooting damn near 50% from three when he was in Sacramento this season, came over shooting uh, significantly uh, less. The other thing that we haven't mentioned is uh, this is the Jose Calderon game. So we talked about Calderon uh, toward the end of the regular season that the Cavs were just much, much better when he was in the starting lineup going into the idea that you just want to surround LeBron with the best possible shooting and passing that you can because if you're not going to get like elite defense from George Hill and at this point you're probably not. Uh, then what are you doing? Like, just go with the shooter, which Jose Calderon is a fantastic shooter. But Hood is this kind of weird edge case where he doesn't do either. He hasn't, like, shrunk himself and, like, gotten more efficient. But, like, he's also just shrunk himself. He's down to, like, in the playoffs, he's at 18 usage percent, which it represents, like, a third of his possessions just gone. And his true shooting, like, is just the same as it ever was. Yeah. And... Like, that is the opposite of what this Cavs team needs. Like, when LeBron goes out, like, it almost looks like they have better shooting, but it almost looks like the the Westbrook Thunder team from last season where when LeBron goes to the bench, there's no one who you trust to, like, dribble and, like, actually make something happen. Yeah, like, do actual initiating basketball-type things. So what do you make of the rest of this series, then? It's kind of a best-of-three now uh, Cleveland rested back the home court at least uh by winning that game four um but do you think that the Cavs are uh, should should feel less panic now than they did when it was 1-1 and they were coming off of home court what, what do you think is going to happen over the rest of this series it seems like we've had so many twists so far there's got to be some more left uh before it's all said and done uh just like the like the Raptor series uh like the Cavs should win this series they should have won it from the start like well this feels fundamentally different than the Washington comeback against Toronto, though, right, just in terms of what we thought about these teams going into the series, because we said uh, on our playoff preview that Indiana is a legit team, you know, that this is a team that could put a real scare into the Cavs or outright beat them. We were kind of a little bit more down on Washington uh, going into that one. This feels like a little bit more of a, a legitimate kind of threat if we're ranking the two to two upset potentials right now. The the underdog, yes, much more legitimate threat. But like kind of the top seed are going in opposite directions here where the Raptors, we kind of got over our questions by the end of the season. We got yelled at by their fans enough and often uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, that, yeah, OK, they're legitimate. We'll believe them. And like they're looking increasingly like they those old habits haven't fully gone away in the first game of the series, especially uh, for for the Cleveland it wasn't clear that they were still like a Cleveland team that like you want to put in the same breath as the previous Cleveland teams like since LeBron came back. In this last game, they made much more sense as a unit. Like they still like have obvious problems on defense. They still have obvious problems when LeBron goes off the floor and when they're just not hitting some of those shots. Like when Kyle Korver is starting 0 for 4, uh, he's not really giving you too much. He can give you like some savvy defensive positioning, but no, he's out there to make shots. And if he's not, it's like just an entirely useless appendage on the court. 
with all that said, though, yes, they should still win because they're more talented. And they, they've just proven over these past few games that they can play at the level and in the style that like has been successful for them before. Yeah, and and we should say a LeBron team has never even faced elimination in the first round of the playoffs, much less actually lost a first round series. So we'll keep relying on that LeBron mystique and LeBron pedigree. It hasn't let the Cavs down yet, given the way that he's played so far in this series, individually at least. I mean, speaking of individually, though, um, the one thing we should mention is that Oladipo has not been as good in these last two games. Yes. And, I mean, the amazing thing is, like, when Lance Stevenson's on the floor, Lance Stevenson looks like he's in charge of that team because he basically is. And I'm not sure if that's, like, a great thing for the team, but, like, it's obviously what they need a lot of times because Sabonis and Oladipo, like— aren't used to playing like these big roles and like you can kind of see them shying away from some of these shots some of these whatever like Sabonis early in that game had some like really bad possessions where just like he didn't look like he was you know just ready for the ball to come to him uh Oladipo hasn't like been looking for a shot as much and this is a thing with Oladipo where this season he has been he's been outstanding and we we've talked about like how when you play at this uh this level you don't kind of recede back into like a, a worse level but also the ball doesn't really stick to his hands and that's good in a lot of ways like he plays like Steph Curry as a superstar where which is like the best compliment you can give someone like he doesn't need to pound the ball and you know eat up possessions and you know just make it all about him he just fits into the offense he lets Collison you know uh, run the offense he lets Turner get involved but when a playoff game comes down to like a few possessions and you really kind of need someone to be pounding the ball creating a shot that on this team is Lance Stevenson, and it's not Oladipo, and that's, that's fundamentally a problem. Yeah, it's been amazing to kind of watch Lance Stevenson return to relevance and kind of revive himself uh, from, back to the same kind of position that he was in uh, in all those LeBron battles five years ago. How, how long ago? Six years? Um, 2014? Like, he's also very good. He's been very good this series. Yeah, uh, and so, you know, he is, uh, I think, a fascinating player in general. And, you know, we we should also talk about uh, Boyan Bogdanovich just completely caught fire in in uh, game three. And that was sort of uh, another case where, you know, if you get a performance like that, it's great. I don't know how much you can kind of count on uh, that kind of performance when um, uh, when you're in a playoff series and you're kind of repeatedly testing yourself against an opponent. And that's what makes this series interesting, I think, so far as we've seen some guys come out of the woodwork and we've also seen you know the the uh, lebron be the uh the stalwart that that he usually is and uh i don't know it'll be fun to watch as as it comes to a climax for what it's worth the carmelo model says that the cavs have a 64% chance of making the conference semifinals started as a 72% chance if i believe <laughs> i think that's right uh so they've gone backwards a little bit but um they're they're still the favorites and that's probably also a function of home court as it is in in all of these series it seems all right that'll do it for this episode we will talk to you again later in the week for even more playoff analysis and uh even more series will be over we only had one concluded series to talk about this time as usual, our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson, our podcast commissioners, Chad Matlin. Please keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear from you. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are there as well, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.